Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Yo, yo, Dev, what's going on? What's going on? Merry Christmas, happy holidays, whichever one it is nowadays. <laughs> it is Merry Christmas for me, but, you know, I respect the happy holidays, people yeah, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how you, how you enjoying this break? Um, yeah, because it's not, you know, it's Christmas, but it's also your, finally your break. Yeah, finally a break. You know, I'm enjoying it. Um, like I said, after the semester ended last week, I, after I submitted my final grades, I'm just taking a, a few weeks just to really just not be committed to any obligations. Um, you know, reading, right? Just kind of just chilling, just being there, being present. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really just enjoying that because it's kind of rare, especially in academic spaces. You're always like thinking about what's next and what what you got to do and what paper you got to write and, you know, game planning. And now it's just good to just like, you know, I'm going to pause all of that and just take some time just to chill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Um, sometimes you need to give your brain a break. And it's very different from like manual labor or hard, but it's it's still labor that can take a toll on you if you don't just like step back a bit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, different. it's just a little different because I think our work is so independent in a lot of ways. And, you know, like you said, sometimes the nine to five, you just you come home and that's it, you know? You know, mm-hmm. you're going to work, you don't got to think about what you're going to do at work tomorrow. Just like I'll pick up where I left off, man. But yeah, so it's good to have that 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 break from my brain. So I'm just enjoying that. Um, niece is in town, so I'm gonna make some time to go see my little niece and catch up with my brother and them. You know, just enjoy enjoy the moment before 2020 hits. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, you have any special plans for New Year's? Uh, no, not nothing really. You know, I, the past few New Year's, I just kind of just been chilling. Oh, I don't know if I'm like. I think when I was in school and stuff, it was cool. Like we were doing, I was doing a lot more trying to figure out like, oh, let's do something for New Year's and hanging out with friends. But you know, I guess once I fully got into that adult life, I just been like chilling on New Year's, me and my wife. (laughs) Well, see, New Year's is my anniversary with John. So Uh, we always do something simply because it's, yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's like two birds with one stone. Uh Uh-huh, (laughs) uh-huh. He like, that's your Christmas too. So three birds. <laughs> that ain't right. That ain't right. How you gonna kill three birds? Uh, that's funny. It's too funny. Um, yeah. um, all right. So you know, we know it's Christmas, and so we know some of y'all are still gonna listen, and some of y'all are just enjoying time with family, and we ain't mad at that. So you know, we'll just keep it simple. This episode cover some of the past hot topics that's been going on this past week and such. Uh, start with some old Lord news and then get with, you know, some of the other things like the debate um, and the impeachment, of course. Uh, and then we'll we'll end it there for, for 2019. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Hello, and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening old Lord news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say... Okay, so starting out with old Lord news, um, I'm sure these students right here are happy to be on break from this teacher. Um, So a California middle school history teacher has been placed on leave after students said she made racist comments, including saying that she wanted a return of slavery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the students said that this isn't the first time she's made um, kind of these remarks and she's done it in the last two months. Um, she had been put on leave in October. I guess they cleared her. But, you know, students say that the teacher is a support of President Trump. She dis- uh, displays Trump memorabilia in the classroom and she praises his border wall with Mexico. Um, and she allegedly told students that she wanted to bring slavery back. And she even gave them assignments on like immigration and Trump. 
Oh, wow. That, that is wild, yo. I can't believe people, there's teachers that actually, I mean, I guess, I guess I can't believe it. So many teachers out there, not everyone is going to um, be not racist, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, yeah. But it's just crazy. But I'm glad they, you know, they got exposed uh, because we can't be having that kind of nonsense being out there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, speaking of Trump and nonsense, I know we're going to discuss him later with like the impeachment, but this is Olo news right here. The Trump administration was busted earlier this week for having the fictional Marvel comic country of Wakanda mm-hmm. listed mm-hmm. on the Department of Agriculture's website as a free trade partner of the U.S. Yes. Yeah, I had that story up, too. That was hilarious. Yo. Um, I think they also had... Uh, Oh, no, it didn't. No, then that was his false report. But they said they were actually had items of trading to a kind of like yellow potatoes, water chestnuts, coffee beans and cows. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. What's wonder, wrong with him? I don't know. Somebody must have just been playing around up there. But that was funny when it broke news. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Wakanda, I guess uh, I think the the guy who's in charge of it said that um, he took Wakanda off, and I guess we're at trade war with them now too. <laughs> child, child. I mean, Trump officials—they are something else this week because another one was actually busted, reportedly saying that um, it was President Obama. Uh, I said President Obama. Lord have mercy. No. <laughs> President Trump's. Which I normally don't even call him President Trump. I just call him Donald Trump. <laughs> anyway, uh, so top reelection advisor told influential Republicans in the swing state of Wisconsin that the party has traditionally relied on voter suppression to compete in battleground states, but they would start playing offense in 2020. And, you know, I think people were just like, oh, Lord, with this, because it's like, wow, they're actually at admitting that that, whoa we win by suppressing votes but they said let's start protecting our voters we know where they are let's start playing offense a little bit i guess instead of just trying to block other people's votes i don't even know what that means oh my gosh that's crazy like um yeah the fact that they're being out open with it and just saying hey this is what we did how do you feel good about that in any kind of competition how are you just like yeah the only way we can win is by cheating uh, I mean, and that for me, that's just like why we really have to do things. I think there was that recent court decision to where I think they were like, oh, this is not something for the courts to handle. This is something for uh, voters to handle and, you know, vote the people out. And it's just kind of like, well, we can't do that if they are using tactics to suppress our votes or to gerrymander and et cetera. So I don't know. It seems like the courts don't want to get involved, but this is getting ridiculous. Yeah, no, it really is. Uh, At some point, I I doubt it's going to happen while Trump is in office, but hopefully this can be addressed. Whoever we can, if we can get Trump out of there uh, with Mm -hmm. the next, the next post. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This other story, it kind of goes along with what we've been talking about for the last few weeks with privacy and data and et cetera. But 267 million people, mostly Americans, their Facebook user IDs, names and phone numbers are exposed online and were shared on the dark web. Oh, my goodness gracious. This is getting crazy. Yeah, yeah. And um, most of the, like I said, most of the users were living in the U.S. And I think when they found the information, you know, they did have the database removed, but it had been up for a couple of weeks. And, you know, it had me wondering, like, okay, is my stuff listed? Yeah, yeah. And especially the holiday season is always a time where these hackers be you know, upticking their their activity. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a second, a project that the New York Times is doing. But I think it's, it's yeah, we're living in times where we got to start being, um, especially the we've been reporting this more often now on, um, on BHD. And I think we need to start really taking this thing seriously and start protecting ourselves because it seems like uh, it's getting serious. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I agree. And, you know, I would just prompt people, especially if you use the same password across different platforms. I think this is a time to just go ahead and change your passwords. Also consider doing the two-factor authentication mm-hmm. thing to where when you sign in, they send you, um, you know, you might be using like a Google app or something like that to where you have to confirm on another device that it is you. Mm-hmm. So, can you know, consider things like that to protect yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of times people just don't do it because it's like an extra step and you want to move quickly and convenience. But I think now it's time to take uh, be a little more um, less lazy <laughs> when mm-hmm. it comes to protecting mm-hmm. ourselves, because you rather doing that extra step than somebody hacking and getting your credit card information. And then that's a whole bunch of steps you got to do to fix that. So, yes, so I yes. think it is worth it at the end of the day. Mhm. Mhm. My last little story just got me wondering what am I doing with my life? Okay. So, an 8-year-old boy who reviews toys on YouTube has been named by Forbes as the platform's highest earner in 2019. Do you want to know how much he earned in 2019 off of reviewing yeah, toys on YouTube? I saw the story. I saw the story. Yeah, I know. Okay, so for our listeners, 26 million dollars. Oh, oh my, my god. And that is up four millions from his earnings in 2018, which is 22. So like this dude between um, it said Forbes estimated the 10 highest earners on YouTube brought in one hundred and sixty two million dollars. And this child brought in a significant amount of that. But he's been doing this for years. So he's like a multimillionaire. This like $26 million for YouTube videos is wild, man. And I think, I think, yeah, it's, it's the day and age, but as a child making that much money, I mean, one, he's already set for life. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, I don't, like, what do you tell to your, how old is he? Six, eight? Eight. Eight, eight years yeah. old. Like, yo, you already a millionaire. You can already like, you know, already have generational wealth. I mean, it's just crazy. Um, the kind of, you know, power that that's given him. But I mean, I don't know. Have me think when I have children, am I going to try to pop some videos up there? See what, see what can happen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny because I also just read an article that, uh, YouTube millionaires or like the top, uh, I guess content producers are starting to experience burnout because in order to become one of those top people, you're, constantly having to release content and it's like it becomes like this day in day out around the clock thing and they're experiencing burnout yeah. but I guess if you've already earned your millions hell I'll just quit uh, yeah after one year 26 million I'm good <laughs> yeah you know you can put some of that in the trust just like you're good you are good you don't need to you don't need to burn yourself out with 26 million I'll tell you that because um, most people was, won't even make that in a yeah. in a lifetime yeah for sure oh yeah for sure 100% um, I think uh, I was watching a while back this show called oh, you might have like called I think it's called Wife Swap yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there, there was an episode where it was like this. I think it was a black family who were like YouTubers and vloggers. And um, and so they were just always connected to the Internet. But it just showed how like it consumed their lives. Mm-hmm. Always just having cameras up, always trying to produce content, following the kids, following themselves. Because the other woman that switched was like this this white woman from like uh the middle of nowhere like uh-huh. they didn't have any internet any wi-fi like the complete opposites you know how they usually do on a show uh, uh-huh. but it showed how it was even really affecting the child uh because mm-hmm. you know the child just wanted to be a child and just like actually play in the park without having having to record or the parents having the camera in the face um so it even shows like i think there can be even though this child is making 26 million dollars i'm sure like you said producing that content is going to take a toll uh of just not being just to be free and have fun normally without always a camera in your face. Mm-hmm. All right. So I got a um, couple stories. Uh, one made a lot of headlines, which we didn't get the chance to talk about. Um, but, you know, the the story of, uh, Daph, have you heard the story of Carol, um, Carol Sanchez? Uh, no. The girl who was kidnapped in the Bronx. Oh, Lord. 
Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Another little juicy smoothie. Oh, yes. <laughs> so for those of you who haven't heard, um, this past week or so, week of some change, there was a major story of, in the, especially in the New York area, of Carol Sanchez, who was a 16-year-old girl from the Bronx, who got kidnapped. Um, and within this probably 24, 48-hour period, there was a lot of stories because a lot of celebrities are actually reposting the story to help find her. And the reason why the story is very believable because they actually had camera footage of Carol getting pulled and yanked away from her mom and by two to three, you know, grown men and thrown into a car and being, you know, driven off. Uh, and so naturally that alarmed a lot of people. Everybody was reposting. Let's help find, let's help find. <sighs> and then sure <laughs> enough, <laughs> A couple days later, Carol Sanchez turned herself into the NYPD um, and essentially said that the whole event was staged. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the reason why Carol had staged this event with her boyfriend was simply because her family is originally from Honduras and were about to move back to Honduras and she did not want to move back. She wanted to stay in the States and stay with her boyfriend. So her and her boyfriend staged this uh, false kidnapping event. You know, uh, I wonder what they're going to do about that. Are they just going to let her go? Are they going to make a, a, what do you call that? A uh, some kind Okay, I mean, she's got it. There's gonna have, because of the resources and the money that was probably used to help find her or look for her. Uh, there's gonna be some kind of ramifications, you know, maybe nothing. I don't know, but I mean, that is that should be a felony, uh, but maybe it won't be. You know, I don't know. It's just yeah. it's a lot. Yeah, was it really worth? It? <laughs> <laughs> Again, I mean, she's 16. I don't know. I I, I think that. Um, she and I'm sure that she did not expect this to make national headlines. Uh, you know, I'm pretty sure she thought it was going to be something like small and, you know, maybe just my mom and it'll be, you know, but because of the video, which I think helped propel it and gain momentum. Um, yeah, I don't think she was expecting that, but she should never have did that in the first place. So, yeah, but it's crazy because she made it so real and I, I'm sure she did not plan for that to be on video. But the fact that it was, I was like, yo, this is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's also gonna, her boyfriend's also going to get in trouble, too, um, because I think he's a grown man. I don't know his age, but she's 16 and uh, she's already underage. And so there's going to be some legal ramifications for him. And he assaulted well. the, the mom, too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. Did the, did the, yeah, did the uh, whole kidnapping thing. So I think, uh, yeah, he's going to get, he's going to be probably quite a bit more trouble than uh, than she will be. Um, cray cray. Yeah. To say the least. Uh, another story, um, you know, I'm tired of talking about this family, but somehow they usually wind up making the news. And, uh, uh, I already know what you're talking about. Okay. Uh, okay. Your girl, your girl, yeah. Kim Kardashian, back in the headlines again. And, you know, I just got to say that I am, I just, I just, you know, I try not to let a lot of stuff get me upset and get me mad. But for some reason, stuff like this, what they were doing, what she was doing specifically, um, just gets me, just really just boils my blood in a lot of ways. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, Kim Kardashian was on the cover of Seven Hollywood Magazine and where she was supposed to be paying homage to Elizabeth Taylor. But the controversy around this is that if you look at the images, Clint Kim is clearly, uh, her skin is clearly, she looks like a black woman, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, that's what I mean. She almost looked like Beyonce in that picture. Yeah, a lot of people thought it was Beyonce, very much so similar outfit to what Beyonce had wore in the past. People had the side-by-side -side looks. Um, and there's just no explanation for it. Uh, you know, Kim is definitely a white woman, uh, very fair skin, has never been this tan where you ever confuse her with a black woman. And all of these images, that's clearly the case. I know some... Body from her team kind of responded and said it was the lighting, uh, but I, I'm not sure how the lighting makes you darker. Yeah, <laughs> you that, I mean, the lighting always made me a little bit lighter. Yes, the more lighter you have, the lighter you looks. Uh, so this is clearly was done by you know intentionally, and you know the Kardashians know you know this idea of uh, what well, not idea, but it is black fishing. Um, 
and where they're trying to perceive themselves to be darker or black to, you know, whatever. And, I, you know, she knows what she's doing. This wasn't even the first time this has happened with her. And so I think they're doing this kind of outrage, outrage media type thing where it gives you more attention because you're doing something that you know is going to upset people. And you know what? That's what I was, I think I was telling someone that is that they have reached a point to where they can't get attention for anything useful or good. Uh, so they spark outrage because mm-hmm. that's the only time they can get attention. Mm-hmm. And that's sad. It is sad. It is sad. And, you know, again, it's like I don't even want to give them attention because I know why they're doing this. So you, we talk about them and people post about them and, you know, it just gives them more attention, um, which gives them more money usually. Uh, and so I don't know. It's like, you know what you're doing, Kim. You can't. People also try to say, like, well, she is uh, Armenian. Or I'm like, I'm like stop it. Stop it. <laughs> that don't mean she's black. Uh, and we've never seen this. I mean, we've not. We've never seen this from Kim before, but we know her skin color. We see her to, time and time again. Um, just because you're Armenian doesn't mean all of a sudden you can be black uh, at the drop of a dime. Yeah. Or you can use that. Even with her tanning. And I mean, she has been in the media like more than a decade now. Never mm-hmm. looked that dark. So oh, let's yeah. stop it. Yeah, yeah. This was done in Byington and and she approved it. You know, there's no way her team is gonna let images just fly out there without getting Kim's approval. Mm-hmm. And so she saw it and she approved it. And she knew she was doing I don't know. I don't know what it's gonna take uh to get out. I put up this post um the other day on Twitter, I was like, I don't know which family enrages me more, the Kardashians or the Trumps. <laughs> uh, it is there, definitely tied for the top spot, and I can't figure it out. I was really thinking, like, which one do I dislike the most? But they both are up there. Yeah, I uh, agree. Um, all right. Enough about the Kardashians. Uh, so a couple, let's begin to a couple other um, stories before we talk a little bit about the politics. Um, one is, well, this is kind of also politics. Um uh, the governor of New Jersey has signed a bill that restores the voting rights of more than 80,000 people who are on probation and parole. Yes, um, no! So, which is, you know, really good. And again, this is, it, it, he means well, Governor Murphy, um, but also I think a lot of politicians do this as well because it's, it, potentially it's almost $80,000 more, not 80,000 80, more votes that can go in your direction, right? Um, if you're the mm-hmm. person that signs it, if they most of them begin to vote, they're going to help vote for you. So I see a lot of politicians moving in that direction, especially liberals, because it is the right thing to do, but also it helps them get a larger voting base. Yeah. Well, that's pretty good. That's the good news. Yes. Um, another thing that made the news was uh, made the news was uh, President Obama was giving a talk and he was talking about how women could solve many of the world's problems that men have caused. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have supported this. It was not really a controversial statement, um, but saying that women can just run the world a lot better than men and that they should be given more opportunities and we should start taking that um, a lot more seriously. And this is something that he, he said before in the past, uh, but it made recent headlines too. Mm. Um, and it's something that I, you know, I definitely agree with. Uh, I'm just tired of seeing, you know, just, just men and men and men and men always. And from we were talking about from the president's office on down, um, and we especially look at Trump's uh, camp, uh, campaign in his office, uh, cabinets and stuff. We see all those images and nothing just but white men. And I don't know. I'm tired of it, you know. Yeah. I feel like, uh, I feel like it's time for, for women. To, it's been time, but definitely let's let's start getting women in these spots. That's exactly how I was feeling, you know, looking at the highlights of the debate and stuff like that. It's just kind of like, I feel like women can offer a different perspective. It's kind of like, if you've always done something the same way, just switch it up a bit. Like, think about Mm -hmm. what happened when we switched it up with Obama. We got, you know, Obamacare and it's not perfect, but like, wow, that is like probably the biggest social legislation that we've had since, you know, in, in decades. Because before that, it was primarily like criminal justice reform. And it's just like, how about we just switch it up for a bit? Switch it up. I think, yeah, I think and I think it brings new energy to politics, you know, refreshing instead of just seeing the same old, same old, you know, older white men in front of it. You know, it's like anytime you see somebody new, you you in school, you had a new teacher. Oh, everybody's excited or a new student comes in. Everybody's excited. Right. It's just that the idea of newness, freshness kind of excites people, keeps people a little more engaged and I think creates more opportunity for change. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah. So hopefully we see that um, in this 
next election. And I think that could be something that could be considered, especially when we try to figure out who we want coming on the Democratic side is like, you know, we definitely consider consider that in our decision making as far as who we'd like to see mm-hmm. um, have that switch up. Um, and um, I guess we could talk about uh, the the Democratic debates a little bit. Um, Dev, you get a chance to read about it, view any of it um, since it happened last week? Yeah, I read about and looked at some of the highlights and I also watch uh, Saturday Night Live. So, you know. Uh, yeah, I missed it. I got to go back and watch it because uh, I wanted to see because Eddie Murphy was on there, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. 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 I got to check that. I'm going to go back and watch it t- today, probably. And so they always, you know, make fun of the debates after mm-hmm. it happens. So um, my overall impression is that uh, compared to the other de- debates, uh, the discussion has been a little bit or was a little bit more substantive um, than mm-hmm. in the past. But it also lacked the diversity that it had in the past. It was like a double-edged sword. Like, you're not able to hear from some of the more diverse candidates that were present in the last debates. And when they do, when they are finally having, like, real conversations about things, um, you know, it's a good thing, but you don't get to hear the diversity of perspectives, like we were just saying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, nah, I mean, yeah, there was it was good because they had seven candidates. Um, so it made it a lot easier to have, you know, more speaking time and really we're able to hear like what are the differences or how, can, you know, how are they poking holes in each other's arguments? And because before when you got like 30 seconds, you only got to say what you got to say and you got to keep it moving. But the rebuttals. So they actually allowed them to like have many rebuttals back to back several times, which I thought was great because that's what we want to see. You know, we want to hear like, OK. We know you guys have similar platforms, but it's time to start, you know, separating from the pack and what makes you different from the other candidates. And so I think that was a really, really good one. Um, watching the debate, it was clear that uh, Buddha Judge was, you know, on the ropes <laughs> because he's been rising in the polls. Uh, Warren was out for him and and Klobuchar was out for him. And, you know, everybody uh, pretty much was taking a shot at Buddha Judge. And although he held his own to an extent. He really, I think it really hurt him um, more than the other candidates that debate uh, because he just didn't have a lot of good rebuttals. They actually rebutted a lot of stuff he said in past debates. Um, like Klobuchar attacked him for what he used to uh, address them about, uh, you know, them being older candidates. Um, but she went down the line and, uh, you know, talked about each of the candidates' uh, like like Bidens and Warrens and Sanders and hers, all of their contributions and experience. And then like, you know, kind of went to Buttigieg and was like, yeah, you, you don't have any of this, <laughs> uh, which kind of flipped that that thing of age on its head of saying like, yeah, we might be older, but we have a lot more experience in this and are probably more ready for this office than you are, who has very little experience. And I thought that was a clever way. Um, and her and then uh, Warren and Buttigieg went at it. Um, for, you know, Buddha Judge having this uh, wine cave dinner, yeah. I think, in Napa <laughs> Valley <laughs> uh, and really talking about how he's like, you know, catering to the wealthy. Um, and this is one of the biggest things of the campaign where most of the candidates are saying they're trying to be very careful of how much say the wealthy has. So they're saying it because it was exclu- exclusive that they're making these behind closed de- door deals and they'll donate to Buddha Judge's campaign and then Buddha Judge will have to do things in return for them. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was all reasonable and Buddha Judge, and when, like I told Daph off air a while back, I said Buddha Judge rarely in these debates brings up um, his sexuality, um, but when his back was against the wall, he, he brought that up very quickly. Yeah. Um, when uh, Klobuchar was uh, trying to attack him about his experience, he was like, well, I know I know what it's, um, you know, I can handle it being tough as a as a gay as a gay man running under Mike Pence. Pence is in, in under Mike Pence yeah. in Indiana. And I was like, oh boy, here we go. He's throwing out the gay card now. <laughs> With your back's yeah. against the wall. Um I thought I was like, yeah, you gotta come better than that because it's not gonna work for the judge. Yeah, I agree. And you know the the polls, so I always look at uh the five thirty eight to look at because they do a lot of polling after debates and a lot of people thought that Buttigieg didn't do very well um and you know we'll see how that actually plays out in the poll because he's like number one and I think Iowa and New Hampshire so we'll see how that like plays out moving forward but everybody just got the impression that like yeah he took some hits as 
somebody that he's not the front runner, but in some of these early uh, primaries, he is. Yeah. Yeah, he is. And I think they, yeah, for like, because they're really thinking about Iowa and that kind of stuff. And he's up there. And he's also stealing votes from probably somebody like uh, um, Elizabeth Warren and stuff like that. And so you mm-hmm. got to separate yourself and make him seem a little weaker. And then people will run back, you know, like, oh, yeah, no, that's not good. Um, so uh, so I think they did good. Biden, the interesting thing about Biden, I think this was a stronger debate for him, but he doesn't speak much. Um, he kind of stays, you know, uh, behind the scenes, if you will, when all the, you know, debacle and the, the back and forth is going on. He just stays kind of quiet. I think he had like the fifth or sixth most speaking time out of the candidates. Um, yeah. While like Klobuchar, I think, had the most. Um yeah, but it's did. just like I'm, I'm paying attention to what Biden's doing. Yeah, like he's just like sitting back there letting everybody else duke it out and not saying much because I think it because he's leading. Um, so it's like if I just stay quiet, then I may not say nothing that's going to hurt me or damage me too much. And let's see how long I can keep this this front runner race going on without saying much. Because, I mean, think about his performance in the last few debates and how it's just kind of like I went from earlier in the year being like okay biden yet yeah, to like yo is you know is yeah. this up to him? like what, what's going on here yeah. so you know he probably somebody probably told him like look this is yours to lose with your mouth so just mm-hmm. stop it stop it yeah yeah um i think klobuchar like i said she had the most speaking night night in time it was probably her best night overall um Yang, you know, Yang is interesting, man. I mean, he get doesn't get much speaking time. But like I said, I think what makes him very, uh, why he stays in the race is because he has that, like we've talked about in this podcast before, <laughs> like how Trump had that one message of build the wall. Yang has that one message of everybody's getting $1,000. Um, uh-huh. And I think it's working, you know. he's And he also seems very casual and just like, you know, not really like the traditional politics of old. Yeah, I think he relates a lot to just American people. Like, you know, he's just a normal dude like us who wants, who means well and wants to give everybody a thousand dollars. And I think that's just is really working for him. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I also kind of thought it was cool that he, one, talked about the lack of diversity on stage and even shouted out Cory Booker to say, I think he'll be back. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's Mm -hmm. cool. But it's crazy because looking at who qualifies for, uh, the January debate, uh, Yang doesn't even qualify yet. Mm. But him and Corey are close. They have the donors. They just okay. don't have the poll numbers. The poll numbers. Okay. Well, hopefully they'll get those poll numbers because I would like to see them both on that stage. Um, I would like to see it like like Corey on the stage when they have more speaking time and can go back and forth where we can really see, you know. Uh, what he's made of, but yeah, I think I think yeah, Yang Yang is you know he's just saying the right things, doing the right, thing, keeping himself in there, way way in there, way longer than I thought he would be, and even with that question of um, they asked about diversity and they took it to Bernie Sanders, and then Bernie Sanders tried to change it and go straight to climate change. He's <laughs> yeah. like, well, I want to go back to that question on climate change, but I I appreciate the moderators because they're like, no, no, Senator Sanders, we want you to talk specifically about race. <laughs> And then he was like, well, well, environmental justice is about race. And I was like, oh, man, here we go. Said, I'm watching him, man. I'm watching him. Uh, because at the bottom line, everything is about everything could be connected to race. Right. Uh, but I think what we're trying to hear from Bernie is like, what about race specifically are you trying to address? Yes, the economy you can connect to black folks. Yes, the health care you can connect to black folks. Yes, environmental injustice you can connect to black folks. But what about race specific, black specific policies are you thinking about? Um and I don't think he does a good job at that. Yeah, you know what? First of all, seeing the audience reaction to the host uh, or moderator saying like, yo, let's answer this question. Like everybody was like, yes, please. Mm-hmm. And I think he should use that as a cue that like people are just like, what's up? What's up with you? Because, you know, I just remember people beating Folks over the head with, oh, you know, Bernie Sanders marched in the civil rights movement. He marched in this. And it's like, what happened between then and now to where race is taboo for you? Or maybe when you were marching in the 60s, it was still more so about, you know, just like protest and rebellion and poverty and not like it makes me think about like has 
has his stance or his ideas about like race or focusing on race change or were they always just more of this like class based thing and the civil rights movement kind of spoke to some of those things. So he marched on that and not necessarily about race. You get what I'm saying? I'm trying to figure out which one it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, no, I think, um, I think this is, that's the kind of, um, facade or the mass or veil he uses because uh, without a doubt him participating in those marches and those things is something that you know is is applauded for sure but I think during that time period I don't think a lot of people understand like the interest convergence of like people who were concerned uh, who were fighting against capitalism mm-hmm, mm-hmm. were especially a lot of white folks um, really took the momentum and helped the momentum of black folks talking about civil liberties. Um, even a lot of the literature, when I read like things like either like James Baldwin or Richard Wright, et cetera, like Richard Wright's native son. Uh, and they talk about like the movements of like white college kids during that time who were supporting the movement, but they were supporting it because it helped them with like the socialist agenda of, mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. because the next step was going to be attacked poverty like let's get racial equality and then we all know martin luther king alone the next step was this war on poverty and so mm-hmm. i think a lot of that you know folks folks like bernie was like yeah i'm gonna get on the front lines with these folks because it's about poverty and class more than it is about race and so i think because it was about race people just assumed that that was the major concern from bernie but it was also very class oriented and i think that was his major concern and i think it is the devil's in the detail i mean we just see what he talks about all the time it's not race uh it's about and so if it was really about race then then we would still hear a lot of that now right mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. me it just seems i think it's safe to say for him it's all about class like you said i think that is a safe assumption to go with yeah well you know i i don't know i just thought it was you know distasteful that he's like okay well i, ju- I just gotta go back to climate change first and it's like nah dog yeah talk about this yeah, it's a little disrespectful man <laughs> A little disrespectful to black folk. Like, yeah, I wanna, I'll talk about that in a second, but let me talk about this. No, no, we want to hear this be a priority in your speaking points, um, especially when you're asked about it. You talk about that directly and don't turn it and flip it into something else and conflate the two. Um, but that's how it is, right? Like, oh, let's talk about climate change and race. Let's talk about economics and race. Just like before, it's like probably let's talk about when during the civil rights, I'm pretty sure it was like class and then race. Race mm-hmm. is always the supplement, the secondary aspect to him, I think, and never the primary, so. Something to keep our eyes on, but but we're we've been watching it anyway. Yeah, I also have to say, so Larry David, who had this show like Curb Your Enthusiasm, he does a, such a good job of pretending to be Bernie Sanders in like the little SNL skits. He is <laughs> so good because first of all, he already looked like Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I'm about to say, way, <laughs> but he, he he got the mannerisms, the voice. Oh, I I love watching him play Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm about to check that out. Yeah, I'm going to check that out as soon as we're done here Um, because I know it's going to be funny. And I want to see my guy, Eddie. Um, All right, so outside of that, I guess we could really talk quickly about, too, what was they opened up talking about in the debates was Trump's impeachment, um, which seems to be a a nice Christmas present for a lot of liberals (laughs) right in time for the holiday season. Um, But there's also a lot of conversation about what this actually means. Mm -hmm. Um, So... To, I guess, update you all, the House has officially impeached Trump, uh, which means that, you know, uh, most, well, pretty much all of them, except like one or two Democrats, um, did not vote for uh, Trump's impeachment. So because it's it's you, Tulsi. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Oh, my God. Tulsi voted present, um, (laughs) uh, which means she really didn't take a stance at all. She said she couldn't in good conscience vote for this, while the other like 220 something Democrat has voted. The the other Democrat who didn't vote it, who was actually a congressman of New Jersey, um, is is changing his affiliation anyway to Republican. So he's not even... Democratic anymore. Uh, what a Democrat. hell of a time to become a Republican. Yeah, I know. Like, why would you yeah. want to switch that? Um, and then Tulsi, who also hasn't, I saw some stats, she's missed like 87%, 90% of the votes. Like, she's never there anyway. And so people also found it interesting that she took the time to actually come and be here for this one, where she really doesn't have a history of voting on anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was probably intentional by her. But we already have alluded to on this 
podcast that she's a plant, like Hillary had kind of mentioned, other folks feel like, why would you not, why would you take the time to vote against this, um, against Trump getting out of here? Mm-hmm. So I think it's silly. She's trying to keep her conservative base happy. Um, but yeah, so because it's a Democratic-led House, you know, um, Trump, both articles of impeachment have moved forward. Um, but a lot of people have been praising this, which is, it is a good thing, but the, uh, the actual impeachment and trial proceeding takes place in a Senate, which is a Republican-led Senate. And because not one Republican voted in favor of this impeachment, um, many are predicting that we're going to see the same thing happen and play out in the Senate where Trump is probably not going to get impeached um, or get kicked out of office. Yeah. Well, so that was one of the things I think it was Mitch McConnell was just like, oh, um, that the I guess the process in the House was unfair. It was, you know, done in like an expedited manner. So we're going to do the same thing, but of course, do it in a you know different direction. Um, and did I read correctly that Nancy Pelosi is actually thinking about putting it on hold in terms of moving it to the Senate because she does not feel like they will take it seriously? Did yeah. I, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it can't, the Senate can't actually move forward with it and determine how the trial is going to be held until she submits um, those the articles, which she has not done yet. And they're saying that she's using it as uh, a negotiation tactic. They say, I'm not going to put this forward until we, the House, kind of has a say or agrees on how you all are going to move forward. Because the Senate, they don't want certain witnesses to take the stand and certain items of evidence to be included. And Pelosi wants to make sure that all of that stuff will be in the trial because it's all becomes not only it, it, what what I think why she's doing it is because it will be all public. And so it will look crazy if there's really damning evidence and then the Senate, the Republican Senate still votes no. Right. If there yeah. are really legit things to be like, yo, he really, you know, obstructed justice and really uh, did some terrible things. Uh, but so they, they want to hide those things. Then it allows them to be like, no, nah, we don't have there's not enough here. Yeah. Um, so we'll see how this plays out. Really won't hear much about it until after the holiday season. Yeah. What's crazy, though, is that uh, I think uh, Anthony Scaramucci was on um, AM Joy uh, with Joy Reid. And he talked about four people that if they were to testify or I guess their testimony was to become public, Trump would be forced to resign because it would probably be so bad. That, that is Mulvaney, which is the White, White House chief of staff, former national security advisor John Bolton, uh, Trump's personal attorney Rudy Giuliani, and the secretary of state Mike Pompeo. Um, Pompeo. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I, I want to hear the testimony, like, you know, people are just like, oh, this impeachment doesn't mean anything. And, you know, it doesn't mean removing him from office although this is like historical in the sense that this hasn't really happened very often but for me it's more of like getting the information out there like I want to know what Mm -hmm. we're dealing with so Mm -hmm. in some ways it's irritating or annoying that this process is playing out in this way in the sense that the Democrats did all of this in the House and you know it might not even be going to the Senate but I appreciate Nancy Pelosi's moves to say we didn't do all this work for nothing. Um, So before we move forward on this, I want to make sure that some things are going to become public record. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, That we have an agreement that, yo, these witnesses will take the stand. and and, I, and the thing, the truth of the matter is, if you feel like Trump ain't doing nothing wrong, then why why are you trying to hide this information, right? Mm-hmm. Like let it all out there. But the fact that you always trying to hide and suppress evidence, like you try to suppress your votes, uh, it's just like yo, it's just y'all need to play a fair game, which clearly they know never usually works in their favor. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll definitely keep our eyes on this and keep y'all updated um, as things go on. And one last story um, that I kind of stumbled upon when I was preparing for this episode, and I think it's important because it already talks to like what 
uh, Daph was talking about earlier about technology and, and increasing your security. Um, the New York Times is doing this big kind of project. Um, I think it's called the Privacy Project. And with this, they've somehow got access to a file, a database, a gigantic file of information, of data, where it holds more than 12 million Americans' cell phones, uh, kind of data and information location data, uh, which actually accumulates to 50 billion location pings. Um, and so they're actually like running all of this, and this data is between 2016 and 2017, so about almost a year's worth of data. Um, and they are like looking at all the information that can be found uh, within this. And they've also been following the locations of like celebrities. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they've, they've uh, had tracked the phones of like Johnny Depp, Tiger Woods, Arnold Schwarzenegger, even like Donald Trump and political officials oh, <laughs> from wow. this data set. Mm hmm. Um, and in it, I mean, it's just really, really scary because it just shows all of the movements of people like um, stepping out of their marriages, uh, people doing things in secret, uh, where they're meeting at, how often they're going. It just tracks all of their movements. Once you put uh, the pings and once you get the, the cell phone ping and their number, you see it where every tower where it's been close to it nearby and what's going on and other cell phones that have been moving the same way. Um, so it's just a really, really scary thing. They're going to continuously release articles as they, you know, continue to mine this data and find this stuff out. Uh, but they're with the, the main premise of it is saying that um, this is just one data set. Uh, and there are many other companies about oh, maybe about 20s or so that actually have this kind of data. Um, and so it's like if they're selling this data, if they get hacked, uh, whatever happens, um, your information is out there. And they're saying that it's almost nearly impossible now to really protect uh, consumers from this because this idea of privacy and what can be tracked and what can't be tracked, who's using this data and for what. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a really scary thing now that we really can't even prevent this from happening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that is scary. Um, I don't know. We're just moving really into the age of surveillance. And it's just, I don't know. Big Brother is ever present in our lives. It's like a show that I love to watch, but it didn't. it wasn't something that I thought I'd live. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, what is privacy now? Um and I don't know. It's just like, I do I want just people to have free access to my information of where I'm going, what I'm doing, um, mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. They give three main tips of what to do, um, at least steps that can help improve and protect. But they said it's still not perfect, right? It's still not going to protect you fully, but it will help. One is definitely pretty straightforward. Stop sharing your location with your apps. Um, turn that off. Uh and, you know, I, I usually don't turn it off all the way. I just have it on while I'm using an app. Yeah. Um, that's so if I'm, I'm like trying to order like, yeah, do DoorDash or something like that or, you know, whatever, it's easier just to have it. But definitely not one app is running and then making sure to close your apps out and not having them continuously run in the background because that means your location is still being tracked if you're using it that way. Um, and then it says disable your mobile ad ID, uh, which sometimes a lot of people don't know about, um, but your location uh, data is sent along with your ad ID. So like this is how they're knowing like where you're living or like showing ads that might be location specific, et cetera. And so uh, this limits the activity of them linking like your location to China solicit or give you certain ads hmm. and preventing Google from storing your location, they said, is another one. So if you if you lose a lot of kind of Google products or apps, uh, they do do a good job of like trying to synthesize all their apps, but they also have it controlling a lot of their location services too. And so you want to make sure you are looking at what Google apps you have and what they're having. And um, and then the fourth one is just saying that location tracking is just hard to avoid. Um, you know, with things like IP addresses uh, and and just using your cell phone and it pinging off certain towers and all this other kind of stuff, it just it just makes it really hard to completely control. But at least doing some of those things will make it hard to continuously be tracked um, in certain ways. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You know, I try to think about what do we want to see and. What kind of laws should we have on this kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. I feel like um, I feel like it's not necessary, right? I would. I don't think I'd be opposed to a law of like completely taking away the ability for apps to look at our location. 
um, and companies to, to look at our location. Like, what is it needed for? It's not that serious for them to send advertisers to us uh, because of where we are and stuff like that. I just feel like I feel like it's just not necessary. Um, although it becomes more convenient, I just think it's not something that we need. And I think uh, we should either give the rights away or ask. They have to ask us to do it or give us some kind of data where it's accountable, accountable, like what are they following? And we get to see what, you know, what's going on, too, instead of it just happening behind closed doors. I don't know. I No, I agree with that. Most of the apps, I'm not even like I, like you said, I'm not even sure like why you need my location other than like Google Maps, which I still I think that's still set to only use while app is running or something like that. I don't know, but we'll keep our eye on this stuff and um, shout out to New York Times for like exposing us to getting their hands on that. You know, 12 million phones is a, is a huge data set. So <laughs> it'll take a lot of time to sift through, but they are, you know, finding all this kind of stuff out. So we'll, we'll keep us ourselves posted and you all posted. Mm-hmm. Um, but all right. So that's all I had. That's all you had, Dad? Uh, I just wanted to ask you really quickly what you oh, thought ahead. about the fact that fewer students are going to college, especially given our profession. Um, Our job depends on students going to college and um, like uh, was shared on our BHD Facebook page, the NPR article that said that nearly 250,000 fewer students enrolled in college than a year ago. And it's Mm -hmm. down like 11%, I believe, since 2011. And it's just like, what do you think of that trend especially given your profession yeah um this this trend has been discussed you know uh it's funny because when you're like a a student whether undergrad graduate student there's there's a side that we don't see right we don't we're not in faculty meetings or administrative meetings all that kind of stuff so when you get to the other side now all of a sudden you're on the other side of things where they're talking about budgets and they're talking about concerns and tuition and um since i've been on the tenure track that has been discussed every year i've been here uh because schools are losing enrollment so they're trying to figure out ways to increase enrollment um and stay competitive um and I think it's changing the landscape of higher education. Uh, one way in particular that our, what our school does is that they made it a lot easier for people with associate's degrees, people with two years degrees in community college to transfer to our schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of offset some of the lower enrollment just from traditional forms of enrollment. So now you're getting more non-traditional students, people who, you know, who are starting school older, who have families, not doing it full time. And that also changes the dynamic of a campus because those are different needs from students too, of like as an instructor. Like when you used to students coming straight out of high school, it's one thing, right? And they're living on campus. But when you're now dealing with a larger subset of students who have families, who commute, who, you know, can only take classes at certain times, whatever it is, it's like, do schools even have the resources for their students anyway? But also kind of going back to your greater point too is how this is going to affect you know, um, academics <laughs> because mm-hmm. tuition does pay for salaries and um, dictates a lot of the resources that are given. Uh, the more students you have, more tuition you can have, greater facilities and resources and research opportunities and funds. Um, and so that's been a huge thing too. Uh, and I think uh, it's more problematic. So what you're starting to see schools do, and I think this is important for, you know, a lot of our listeners is that schools are one, pushing to start doing online teaching more mm-hmm. often. Uh, because that saves money uh, because you don't have to actually pay for like the physical space. So, you know, having 35 students in a class means you got to have 35 chairs and all this kind of stuff. But then I can up it to 70 students in an online class and I don't need a physical space for that. Mm-hmm. So I can still charge these students maybe a little bit lower tuition, but we're not actually paying for them to like eat and and use electricity and all this other kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So they're pushing a lot more faculty who are tenure track to learn and teach online classes. And they actually start us by doing like hybrid classes. So they it's funny how they package it to us. They'll be like, okay, teach, uh, you know, one. So what hybrid is you teach one day in class and then one day online. Mm. So for, you know, for us, that sounds great. Like, oh, this is great. That means there's one less day I got to be on campus. Um, But eventually they're going to switch to, okay, well, now we're not going to have hybrid. So now you can either just teach online or in person. Right. Um, And then, of course, naturally, most people probably would like to teach the online classes. But then they'll say, well, if you're going to teach the online only, you're going to have to have at least double the enrollment. Um, 
income. Uh, so and so and then they're also starting to try to hire less tenure track faculty. Uh, yeah, um, that which is, is a big thing. The issue. Um, so they're like, OK, now we'll hire more adjuncts. We'll hire more lecturers and instructors where that's more contractual work where we can, one, pay you less and then two, you know, keep you here for only a year or two and then, you know, get somebody else who keep you don't have to raise money, right? Or for like tenure and getting raises and keeping up with inflation. It's like we can literally keep this same, you know, whatever it is, say forty thousand dollars a year. And if you don't want any more, then we'll just hire the next person that wants it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're high, seeing a lot more adjuncts and lecturers and less tenure track positions as a result. So I don't know. It's a lot. Uh, <laughs> it does affect higher education. Um, in a lot of ways. And I don't. And this is even with a place like SUNY, the biggest issue is that students. So with state schools, it's supposed to be that state. The reason why state schools are always more attractive for students who live in state is that they the state covers a lot of the tuition. And so traditionally, historically, SUNY schools, the state of New York would pay for 75 percent of the tuition. The students would cover 25 percent. Over the past decade, it has switched where students pay 75% of the tuition and the state pays 25% (laughs) as well. Um, And so now the school's budget is is much more reliant on student tuitions than it has been in the past. But the reason why states were able to do this is because of the depression, the economic depression in 2008, where you saw this massive uptick of people going back to school. So the school was like, oh, since we have a lot more students attending and now we can up take the tuition, they'll pay more and then we could pay less and it'll save us money to, you know, ease the issues of going on with the budget. But now since the economy's gotten better, the states haven't reversed it back. And so if the states committed to the 75 percent, it would be less damaging. Right. So state schools would still be very attractive to tenure track um, people who are trying to go to tenure track positions. But because not now, the states are like, oh, we don't have enough money or the schools because the state's not giving us enough money. So I don't know. It's a lot. It's a lot there. And it, the, the, to, you know, to say it all in a nutshell is definitely going to impact um, colleges and universities a lot. Yeah, I feel like we we're going to be we gonna have to find alternative routes, because if I feel like in the next 10 years, if you thought you were going to get a 10 year track job, it's just because it's already hard now. It's just going to be even worse. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know. I don't even know. Uh, but mm-hmm. we shall see. But I do know that I I looked in some to some adjunct work one time mm-hmm. and I'm like, yo, this is what y'all pay people. Yeah. Is this what mm-hmm. y'all pay people per class? And it's crazy because, I mean, it's probably because it's a well-resourced university, but like, I make more money TFing or TAing a random class at my school than I would as an adjunct teaching my own class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'm just like, nah, I, I, uh-uh. I, I can't do it. I just yeah, can't nah. do it. Yeah, it's, it's definitely the adjunct pay is not pretty. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and the thing about adjuncts is that like one, usually they're underpaid, but a lot of them are like, okay, I'm just going to do this until I can find a tenure track. But it's hard to find a tenure track when you're teaching like four or five classes and you don't have time to do like research, right? Because mm-hmm. your main job is to teach. And so how can you like keep something together or publish uh, so you can be attractive in the market? It's a lot. Uh, And I think that, yeah, you're right. The prediction is that those who are starting to enter or look for tenure track work um, is going to be more difficult than it has been the past few years. So I would suggest probably looking to alternatives, definitely getting postdocs would be should be on a lot of people's radars who are graduating yeah. and looking uh, not just the tenure track positions because a postdoc will definitely help you get into a tenure track. It's kind of like that added experience. Um, and then, um, yeah, and I think there has to start. We have to start being open to other forms of uh, occupations, whether it's trying to create your own <laughs> um, way of, you know, entrepreneurship or working for certain companies and brands. The government always looks for researchers, depending on what you're doing. Um, I don't know. But I think just looking at a tenure track is not is not as uh, lucrative as it used to be or easy to get into. It's for, that's for yeah, sure. yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. No, good point. I'm glad you brought that up because that that's something definitely worth mentioning for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <sighs> but all righty. 
Um, so I guess that's it for this Christmas episode of BHD. <laughs> As we said earlier, hopefully y'all are being safe, enjoying some time off, hanging with the family, spending time with yourself, taking that time for self-care and relaxation before you start off 2020 so you can bring 2020 off in, in the right foot and in the right mind and right spirits and all that good stuff. Uh, so definitely take the time to just enjoy the present because that's that's important. Yeah, yeah. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Happy Holidays, Happy Hol- Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Happy. <laughs> well, we'll we'll hear from y'all on New Year again. Yeah, talk or, to y'all New Year. Yeah. Too. Um, but yeah, just have a good time, all of y'all, and uh, and Happy anniversary uh, to you, Dav. Yeah, and, thank and John. You. <laughs> uh, we love Black Love on this podcast. We love Black Love. Oh, yes, we do. <laughs> Other than that, keep um, having fun, y'all. And if you haven't yet, follow us on social media at BHD Podcast. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Go ahead, follow us, add us, say happy holiday, shout us out. We'll shout you out, too. Go ahead, visit the website. Got some time off. Catch up with some of the old episodes, blackandhighlydangerous.com. If you haven't listened to us in a while, this would be a good time to kind of catch up. We've been having some interesting conversation and guests on. And then go ahead, review and rate us on iTunes if you haven't did that yet that really helps us out you can also contact us at bhdpodcast at gmail.com if you have any ideas again you just want to say hello happy holidays shoot us an email we appreciate that and then go ahead share us with your friends share us with your family and share us with your enemies and as always continue to be the oppressor's worst fear if you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. Worst fear.